Why with Arcia Tecun. Kia ora koutou, kia I got Anisha and Lana together, and we've currently been working on a project that will be coming out later this year towards a grammar of race in Aotearoa, New Zealand, an anthology that explores race uh, both locally, globally, because it's been a few years now since we started reading together. What do you remember of why we decided to start reading books together? And perhaps what you remember the most from, from doing that? Well, I remember cornering Ani at a party of our mutual friends around a fireplace, a, fa- a fire pit outside. And I was quite, it was 2020. It was sort of like right in the midst of the Auckland and Wellington BLM matches sort of pandemic time so it was like kind of full-on and I was full-on with my PhD and so I think I was at that point where anyone who I could talk to about academic ideas I would find them and force them to talk to me and I remember we were kind of talking about just some ideas and then I sort of said should we just start like a reading group and then the question was who would we invite and I was like I can only think of Daniel and then it was sort of like is three people enough for a reading group and then that's kind of how it started Um, and I think before that we had sort of had a brief chat around Afro-pessimism or it was at least something that we were kind of collectively talking about but hadn't really engaged in and that's sort of my memory of the very start. Yeah I I remember that conversation with Lana and then I also remember meeting Lana outside. I think I had maybe recorded an earlier podcast with you Daniel and then I saw Lana outside or vice versa. And we've always kind of had these really um, good conversations and gravitated towards the same authors. And so we've been in sync in that way. And then, yeah, with Lana too. And then it just made sense as a group that we'd come together and have those conversations together. And I'm wondering, and we've read a lot of stuff over the years now and a lot of it, you know, building up to, which eventually ended up in this project, which we'll get to in a little bit, but, I guess the other thing I was going to ask is what books do you remember the most or what ideas or what conversations stand out maybe the most in what we've looked at? Because we've looked at so many different things and we try to juxtapose different kinds of texts as well to make sense of not just our experiences, but the world in, in a bigger sense. But I'll, I'll toss it back to you to see what, what, co- what comes up, what still resonates. I basically remember only two books, <laughs> which are Wilderson's Afro-Pessimism and Lisa Lowe's Intimacies of Four Continents. Oh, and Jodie Bird's Transit of Empire. Those are the three books that I basically have. They've become quite foundational to, I think, how we're thinking about race in New Zealand and to the book project that we've done. But also they've become so foundational to like how I think about the world. They've just been such keystone texts, like formative texts for me. You know, I was remembering one of the things that's so fun about doing the reading group, like, like you're such a good conversation person. Like you really externalize that process of learning. And for me, I've always kind of been more like I can read a book on my own and make sense of it. And it's almost like a more introverted process of engaging the text but what I love about the reading group is it gave me an opportunity to do that as well and to lean into that and then that's always when I have the most like moments of things clicking into place when I can explore it in conversation and I've had so many of those moments with you guys more than I would have kind of just reading a text on my own and that's been so valuable for my own kind of learning process. Just backing off of that I could have read all of these books and been fine and understood them and probably been able to have a conversation with them but I don't think I would have been able to advance my own thinking without having the kinds of discussions we did around them um in terms of like developing my own kind of like critical series or critical ways of thinking about the world and so yeah I totally hear that Annie um I think like the main one for me is definitely Afro-pessimism, 
because it continues to challenge me in a way that I think is like very productive and intimacies of four continents I loved as well but I think it kind of like affirmed a way I was thinking anyway and gave me language to some things that I was was unable to articulate on my own the other one that I also kind of love because I think when we start well when we started this for me anyway I thought that there were like questions that I could find answers to and then you realize very quickly that that is not the case um and there's very few people who will be like vulnerable enough to go on like a thought exercise where the only place you lead to is the end of the world and to be able to have these very like serious conversations about the end of the world as we know it from quite a like optimistic place rather than like feeling really sad and miserable about it but actually that actually being a really productive space from which to think from and so otherwise worlds and like the incommensurability of that I actually found really helpful and quite enjoy actually holding on to the fact that you can have all of these amazing scholars come together and no answers possible can come from a single text and like that's okay and actually to sort of sit in that mess and I feel like my relationship to transit of empire has maybe changed quite dramatically over the course and that I think I was maybe a little bit more accepting of it at the start and sort of as I've kind of layered that with other texts I feel that I have a bit more complicated a bit more of a complicated relationship to it how about you though Daniel man yeah I think those those three that you mentioned Annie that you've reiterated Lana were the ones that have for sure stayed with me I I love the kind of the globality of the intimacies intimacies of four continents and but yeah Afro-pessimism like it's and I'll 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 let you kind of fill in where because I forget I always know that it's you that told me about it uh Lana and Ani but um I feel like when I'm not around Afro-pessimists for sure I feel like I'm an Afro-pessimist but then when I'm around then maybe I'm less so because it is so challenging. And so I think that's what I like about it is it, it pushes me and it, it causes me to shift so much. But um, I think for me, the yeah, it really stuck out the fact that we read that. I remember reading that one together with Transit of Empire. And I had read Transit of Empire before, but I read it as a master's student and I was essentially learning how to read. <laughs> and so I really didn't fully grasp it. It was just so dense and out of reach in many ways but i remember liking how it made me think um but then rereading it and then rereading it being able to grasp it more was was awesome but then juxtaposing it with afro pessimism was so good because it was just like man the yeah the the incommensurability made sense to me because it was juxtaposed with each other um and then yeah i do remember also otherwise worlds which I appreciated because I felt like that was kind of, it, it gave an opening to what I think we're doing something perhaps in relation to that kind of a project of bringing together a bunch of authors from different backgrounds, different camps, different lenses on perhaps let's say a shared uh, word or term or, or, or idea, at least on some level. Um, and then you realize how different it all is. And reading Otherwise Worlds was like that because you go from the Native Studies stuff to the Black Studies stuff and you can see the relation and the overlap, but you also see the rift and the challenge. And But by putting them together, it helped me kind of see maybe um, perhaps the cause of those challenges as being bigger. And to use Wilderson, right, when he's talking about this meta theory within Afro-pessimism, which is why a lot of people struggle to grasp it, is he's talking about the largest level possible or imagining in that level. And if, and if you don't, it, it takes work to get to, to that place intellectually or philosophically, right? Or just, you gotta sit with ideas for a while. You gotta put in intellectual work. And I think contrasting it with stuff that is also doing these kinds of things, but in a very different ways, made it more possible for me, if that makes sense. Of like, it made it more possible for me to begin to grasp a bigger idea that was perhaps beyond anything I had previously been able to do. And for me, while I can read this stuff and it does stuff for me, yeah, like thinking together helps so much because 
there's different things that I think we emphasize or that we see. But yeah, I mean, like on one hand, like I remember uh, Jody Bird's Trans of Empire and the concept of Indianness. And it was so different this time because we had just read Afro-pessimism. It's like when you're making certain claims, but you're reading it with somebody else who's making other claims, it, it helps reveal those tensions or incommensurabilities, right? That's just me processing that stuff. Yeah. Other thing I would just add is, um, I suppose, like my own personal desire to want to read with you both is that I've always just been so hungry for that level of critical theory and thought here. And I don't think we have very much of it. And when we do, single texts kind of get uplifted as these be all and end alls. And when you kind of spend time in that kind of American university canon, you realize that people have really different thoughts even though they may be from similar or overlapping discipline areas and it was actually really freeing to kind of realize that that you can be a part of a collective of scholars and thinkers and have really different ways of thinking and seeing the world and so yeah I just think that that's kind of like a really that was the other thing too is that it's not that when it's not that I am always wanting to read from other places although I think that is also really important but it's kind of when you don't have your own languages and your own kind of discourses and vernaculars to discuss things that you're seeing right before your eyes you naturally go to these other places. Like one of the other things I appreciate about us coming together to do like a pretty rigorous reading group is that we're all also coming from different disciplines and so we're quite actively trying to not do the kind of solipsism that happens if you're only in your discipline or you're only reading things that are going to reinforce your particular theoretical view rather than in, like seeking out the engagement with things that will challenge that view. So I think what we're doing is like, interdisciplinary in the sense that we're all coming from these different disciplines and different theoretical perspectives but we're also really open and curious to um like we're not doing the kind of paranoid reading of you know like we're only reading things that aren't gonna um yeah that are gonna support our methods and our approaches and our perspectives but we're doing something quite reparative in reading together, which I really appreciate because not only is it more generative, but it also helps us engage with our own contradictions and our own like complicity or the ways that we might be reproducing epistemic violence. Like it helps us acknowledge and come to terms with and assess that you know, coming, you coming from, you know, the sociology and philosophy background and, and London with art and, and, and design and, and then, you know, coming out of anthropology. And, and so you spend so much time just trying to grasp the conversation in the discipline that you, you, at least for me, you know, you forget that there's conversations outside of it because, you know, it took me so long just to be able to get to a place of like, what are people even talking about catching up to like, you know, these long intellectual traditions and then you get in it and then you you almost like there's these blinders that come up at times and having to confront the ways that other people other disciplines other positions mm -hmm. are talking about something was really um insightful for me and that's what i think challenged me so much and helped me dissolve certain things and then that helps me realize all right what's going to stand up and what's mm -hmm. what do i gotta kind of abandon and i think race in particular was so you know, because as far as academic disciplines, all of ours were, were had some experience with it, but we had very different histories, relationships to that conversation, and even how to interrogate the question of race. I remember the, the I made this blog post, what, a couple of years ago, back with the 28250, and I was talking to fellow anthropologists, I was challenging the, the lack of engagement with race. It's kind of dismissed as a folk category for many. And so I would use the, the scare quotes on race because that's who I was always talking to. And I knew that if I was going to talk to anthropologists, I had to say, okay, race isn't real in the biological sense. 
And I have to always reaffirm that because of who I'm talking with. But then with us, <laughs> that got challenged. So now I don't use the scare quotes, but I, that was because of who I was talking to. And because I, I was able to talk to use, that meant, okay, there's a different conversation that can emerge now. There's a, there's a different possibility of understanding that can emerge because I have to talk to a bigger group, right? I have to talk at a bigger level. It's funny because coming from, uh, obviously there's a, it is a discipline, but also we're just like magpies for everything. And so I've always just slipped and slid around and just read whatever interests me at the time and kind of just like grabbed and tried to sew and stitch ways of thinking together. And so sort of seeing these kind of conversations from you two, from like Anthro and Socio come together in real time was like really opening. I was like, can't we just like, what even is a discipline? I don't even know what you're talking about, which is probably what the discipline of fine art is based on, this kind of pseudo everything, pseudo answer, pseudo sociology. But um, I think the kind of challenges that we put to each other or put to ourselves, pairing texts that were directly antagonistic to each other, also just like gave us all of that space as well. And I suppose those kind of permissions to move around and slip around and then very quickly you also realize that there is no um like no one has got it right <laughs> and so there's kind of this really important need to actually break these things down and not necessarily rebuild to replicate but to you know see if there's a more productive way in which we can patch together the literatures that already exist to help us more realistically in the real world as opposed to re building the kind of silos of the university and that's another thing that I think like brings us together or something that we all have in common is that we all don't necessarily like purity in a position <laughs> like we all kind of quite are, we're drawn to messy theories and contradictions and tensions and limits and we're drawn to theories and thinkers that discuss the messiness of modern life yeah, I think that's been something that has been hard to find inside our own disciplines because often disciplines want pure content in the sense that they want to uphold themselves and they don't necessarily look outside of the canon to theories that might challenge the kind of foundation of that discipline. I was just going to say, I think that also probably speaks to our relationships to the university in that if we were really wedded to our discipline areas, I think we would be more reluctant to engaging in projects which threaten the foundations of the disciplines. But if you're kind of committed to a pursuit for something else, you know, even if that's just kind of engaged, like a pursuit of engaging in critical thinking, then you you kind of realize that you have to, you can't be wedded to those disciplines because those disciplines work against the kind of critical thinking that we're interested in engaging in. I think some people are wedded to universities in ways that are like very different to our relationships that we have with them. I feel like now <laughs> I sit in between even more worlds than I did before, having lived here as long as I have now. And then I almost felt like initially when I got here, I was like an indigenous paradise, right? And I was sitting in indigeneity and this kind of romanticized view of, you know, uh, I was in this honeymoon <laughs> phase with, with Aotearoa in New Zealand. And it took me like a year or two to compress fully, or at least enough that I could then question my own romanticized, you know, comparison. Um, and part of that was the fact that I thought at the time was like, oh, there's not the same emphasis of race, right? Like everything here is ethnicity. Like even all the forms that I had to fill out as a student initially, right? And those kinds of things and, and the discussions that would arise. But at the same time, I was like uncomfortable with like, I was seeing power operate through race, but there was, it was like unspoken, almost invisible here. 
in, in many ways compared to the opposite in the States where indigeneity was, was the, was so invisible. Um, and, and that was, which again, to me, that's why like, I was vibing with Jody Bird the first time I read it. And I still got appreciation for the text, right? But I was coming from that context of like, yeah, I totally see that invisibility, that erasure. Um, and, and, and it's there and it's here too. I'm not saying that it doesn't exist here, but it exists in a very different way. And so for me, I was kind of like in between these discomforts. And now I talk to people in the States and I feel like I'm in outer space. And, and, you know, <laughs> and over there, and then being here, I'm in outer space, you know, something like, oh, man, like, the more that I interacted with these different worlds, the more I needed language, like you mentioned, and thinking through, what is it exactly that I'm experiencing? What is it exactly that others are experiencing? How, and it's not even about coming to terms is how can I even explain it or identify it? There's something there. And, and that's what I love about, I think, the philosophical aspects of our discussions and the texts that we read, like, I love the word metaphysics now. I'm like, yeah, that's what I'm interested in. Like, what is that invisible stuff that is animated through our lives, right? What is it, the reality that I'm living through or, or that I can sense? Um, and, and even by putting words on it doesn't mean that we fully grasp it, but maybe it, it gives, maybe add some contours um, or, or, you know, some reflection to to see that there is this stuff happening right also why kind of i think grammar is such a useful concept for us in this project because it is about language it is linguistic it's about kind of what is the um like can we come to a shared grammar that allows us to talk to each other in a way that we all can understand but it's also metaphysical because it's that quote we say in the book um which is like grammar is bringing to focus on grammar is to focus on what's unspoken but it structures language and in the same sense metaphysically if you think about race as a grammar it's something that's unspoken it's invisible but it structures everyday life and it structures our experiences and so I think that use of that twofold use of grammar has been really useful in the book to frame race and to frame what we're trying to do with the project. And that local global stuff to me was also that things I was like, how do I, I was like, I see it here. I want to talk about it here, but it, I know that here's different. And, mm -hmm. and I know that we've, we've had these conversations. Maybe that's what I'll turn over to you now as well as like, you know, while, and you mentioned it a, a bit earlier as well, Lana, like you're not always trying to look to stuff outside, but sometimes it's important to, you know, see how we're in the world, <laughs> many worlds, right. That exist and, and the world's here. But sometimes that susceptibility for clean language, right, um, pure language kind of can obscure that fact that, yeah, Aotearoa is different, right? New Zealand's different, but that doesn't mean that it's not part of this larger world. Um, and even like the U.S., right, like New Zealand, so many people that I know over there, you know, still confuse New Zealand with Australia, right? But it's not as if they don't have a point of reference for this part of the world, right, whether it's through Disney or the all blacks or whatever, right? Like there's, it's there and, and it might be in problematic ways or through problematic means or pathways, but it's there. And, you know, how do we face that instead of, you know, pretending like it's not all mixed up and messy already? You know, I think there is this tendency here in Aotearoa to keep things quite separate or to think about the way in which our society operates separately from the Northern Hemisphere. And I think there's a resistance when we start talking about race or bringing in well, the way in which various racial terms and concepts have kind of become a part of the everyday language. There's a real hesitancy there. And you quite often see people pushing back, you know, why are we talking about colorism? Because we do have this preference to discuss ethnicity, et cetera, et cetera. And I think the more texts we read, you kind of, the argument, that argument, becomes harder to stand by because it just becomes more and more clear that the logic that exists the world over is the same logic with different outcomes and different sort of results in different geographic locations but that logic is the same and it is introduced and it's not from here and like that's actually a really productive way to be thinking about this conversation because I think it stops that um the sort of like personal of it that can actually stop us from having the conversations because we start to learn 
we start to be more comfortable discussing it as this global structure or this sort of global structuring order. I think, yeah, that's kind of why the intimacies of Four Continents as a text that we read stands out to me so much because I kind of, I mean, I always, so when I kind of did philosophy and then I studied kind of France Fanon and decolonization, it was pretty, I mean, that was pretty specific. And then philosophy is pretty abstract, but Lisa Lowe kind of does the historical work of looking at the different connections around the world between the continents and between the systems and structures and regimes of capitalism, the transatlantic slave trade, settler colonialism in the Americas, indentured labor. Like she looks at all these different things that are going on at different parts of the world at different times and threads them together in a really cohesive, historically sound narrative that it seemed so, like, I don't think I had read anything like it. And so that's really influenced my work. Like now I kind of want to be able to do the historical stuff of go, like going into archives and figuring out what, how different documents or how different, um, I don't know, like cultural texts or whatever can be clues to connections that have been erased. And that's kind of what my chapter in the book is trying to do. It's an attempt at basically, yeah, this kind of, you know, this resistance that Lana mentioned before about um, we don't have US conceptions of race here, like it's different here. This kind of like sense that New Zealand is somehow exceptional and not necessarily connected to these longer histories that precede the colonization of New Zealand, but reconnecting the history of colonization in the Pacific to the transatlantic slave trade and in particular the Haitian revolution. Yeah, so that's been, that's been pretty formative for how I think about race. And also it's been formative for kind of my research methods going forward, because now I've kind of, I'm really interested in doing that historical work that I, which kind of enriches the more abstract philosophical stuff that I was interested in before. Like that kind of historical approach that you're discussing undoes some of the easy, um, like offhanded critiques of reaching for the global because it, it kind of makes it um, a nothing criticism mm -hmm. too when you see those things. And I suppose I come mostly from not strictly a Pacific studies perspective, but just kind of that general space of like being interested in contemporary Pacific life. And I had a lot of pushback in this kind of same way when I was trying to talk about Pacific people's experiences of a sense of globality. And it really, um, I don't know, I find it kind of perverse that we try to like freeze ourselves in these images of our past that um, are actually, to my mind, a part of the colonial imaginary because, like, you know, why would you want to freeze yourself as these figments of a past imagination? Why, you know, why, what is the resistance to actually understanding our place in the globe and the way in which all of these things impact on our lives? Because if anything, I think once you start to understand the structure, it's, it can be more emancipatory individually at an individual level. And so I think that's, I really love the kind of historical approach that you you went for too, Annie, because I think it just, I don't know, it's a little bit like a mic drop, right? Like once you just kind of tell those stories, it's like, well, it's just kind of what happened. Like you can't answer to it. Like it's there. And it's just almost like, how do you summon through excavation mm -hmm. the, I guess the way, the, what I'm, what's coming to my mind is like the, the metonym that animates the metaphor we're living in. Like if we're the, if the present is the metaphor for the the past right the, the past is what informs how we're animated today but if we don't know then we're just in this the shadows of the metaphor we don't know what a metaphor means anymore we just we're using it but we have no idea where it comes from and so i i, I love that but i the other thing i, I was going to say that i like a lot um from both of yours but just to first on anis is that while lisa lowe's work is incredible and, and for me, it gave me a lot too, like the way she talked about race and thinking about new groups and how they function as buffers to, you know, groups that are already there. I mean, that just, it helped me 
make sense of the many layers and even my constant transit to jump back to Bird's notion of, of transit and movement. Like, like I'm constantly shifting. I'm never in one spot. And, and being geopolitically located differently at different times, like Lisa Lowe's book helped me understand that. Like, you know, because I, I pass for so many things, depending on where I'm at. And so like when I was in the UK, like I'm, I'm like South Asian Indian. I'm like the Indian Indian, you know? And, and, and then in the Americas, I'm like the American Indian, the other kind of Indian, the red Indian, right? Unless I'm hanging out with Islanders and then people are like, man, that's the shortest Islander I've seen, but maybe he's one of them. Um, and then here I'm Samoan, unless I go to the South Island and then like, oh, you Maori. Apparently not a lot of brown people in Te Waiponamu, but um, <laughs> so, but yeah, like it just helped me make sense of like that history everywhere. Um, but then the thing that you bring to it that I loved as well was that, yeah, and it goes to your point as well, Lana, of like the, the, the Moana, Wansawara, Oceania is also part of this globality. And while these texts are, are incredible, like you fill in. Um, from our sea of islands and using a Pelihaofa, right, who also has this, right, being raised in Papua New Guinea, um, being a Tongan, and then, like, being nationalized a Fijian because of how much time he spent there and lived there, like, you know, and his continental thinking, but then how do you put that into conversation with Lisa Lowe? And I love that, because to me, that's the other thing of being positioned where we're at here. I'm like, hey, there's also this side of the story that fills in and excavates further other elements that have been either erased or forgotten. Jumping to yours, Lana, like, I feel like in that same spirit, like, it's, it's helped me a lot because, um, like, I used to be a hater on pop culture. Now, like, I study it, you know, and, and I can't, like, shake it. Now it's like my excuse for my guilt, my undercover guilty pleasure. Um, and, um, and then also it's the same with, like, social media, like, oh, you know, but at the same time, like, it has become such a big part of our world right now. And um, your work with the contemporary, I, I think it's just, it's so, it's really important in, in recognizing that and it kind of, and that same kind of globality, right? Like that's a, it disrupts this whole notion too. And I, I think for me, it helps me find a lot of language also in that I feel like there's all these contexts and, um, they collide online <laughs> and you, you, you trace that so well, how the local is global and vice versa simultaneously, whether we like it or not, you know, we, we got to deal with it. This is probably where my discipline does come in is that in the lack of theory and articulation, I've always been drawn to the visual first and foremost. And so, cause there's very little Pacific writing about contemporary Pacific lives I've always extrapolated what people are like sort of thinking and how they see themselves through the art that they make. And I think that's kind of the same methodology that I use for thinking about online texts. So like, I see all of these things kind of in the same plane, they're all of equal value because they all kind of tell you something and they're like super revealing in what they can tell you. And so that's why I've always loved social media, especially in a Pacific context, because we are such a young population here in Aotearoa, up until like very recently, you wouldn't see many Pacific people kind of writing in like the journalism space that would all exist. Like these social cultural conversations all existed online. Um, and I think we're in a different place now, right? Where like, we understand that these are counter publics which are organized across racial and ethnic lines. And that's like a pretty well-established discourse, um, but not in the Pacific context, I would say like, so yeah, I, I suppose in a way, um, my chapter just borrows from a whole bunch of things that I've seen, this kind of conversation that I mentioned earlier about race and ethnicity and my frustration and kind of assuming that people don't really understand how those things are different. And so the result is just these like huge arguments that happen. But also my issue with people kind of disregarding our discussion around or our use of um, racial theory or critical theory that discusses race from the United States is that when you look online, people are already using this language, like this language that was created in American universities. And so if people are already using it and they're finding it useful and they're deciding for themselves that these terms are useful to discuss, then I think we have to pay 
greater attention to it than to just dismiss that it, it's from over there and it's it's not helpful or it doesn't make sense here. And so yeah, I was just kind of, I suppose, interested in digging into that a little bit in my chapter, which again, I think like all of this and maybe like the opinions in the book itself or the perspectives in the book itself, it just kind of results in something which is slightly incommensurable and that we are all kind of coming to these discussions thinking that we have these understandings of these terms that are shared, but they're actually not. We all have these sort of personal individualized understandings of these terms. Um, and I think unlike online where there's no room for a kind of productive discussion about that incommensurability, hopefully in the book, we can kind of get a, a bit more of a bird's eye view on that. Hopefully um, makes the conversation a bit more productive than what you would tend to see. I would say every three months on Twitter, it almost is like clockwork, <laughs> that conversation, as it just sort of pops up. <laughs> but, you know, the internet's not that old, right? But I feel like I came over, I don't know, before my, at least in my sense, people that I knew, you know, there were still people who were holding out on, you know, smartphones to a certain degree or that kind of thing. And like, but, you know, when I, when we moved over, it was like, it was starting to, get to the point where like everybody it was assumed that everybody or most within the societies we're in had access you know um to to the internet to google to whatever right to twitter to all these things and 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 immediate access and i feel like all this stuff is available in there too like for me researching is so different now as well because even me being a phd student at the time like in going through stuff like i look at my thesis and I look at theses, theses that were written even 20 years ago, right, um, and, and older, and I've got like four times, five times the references. And it has nothing to do with like my intellectual capacity versus the people 20 years ago is I had control F, a PDF and Google Scholar, right? Like I just was able to really, you know, hone in in ways that just was available. And at the same time, I think that we're still processing how to deal with the information age, if that's even the appropriate term for it, but like, and, and these technologies and these types of communications. And I feel like, you know, you know, part of what my chapter alludes to a little bit is that, you know, we've always been connected on this planet, but we haven't always been able to, you know, see how we're connected in the way that we are right now. And the digital space is, is one of the ways in which that happens. But I feel like it's also maybe information overload because we're still so early on, right? And you talk about young populations and, and that, but it's also, you also talk about the digital native and your other work as well. And I think, you know, growing up with internet in a sense of like when it came onto the scene. Um, and I think we're still processing what the hell it is that we have access to. And we have all this stuff and it's just so much. And how do we process it? And I, I don't think it's, it's that messy early, I guess, growing pains. And so that's what I liked about yours as well. It's like, it, <laughs> it deals with that in ways of like, yeah, this is, it's a mess. It's everything available in a sense that was never available in this kind of way. And how do we deal with it? I think too, like maybe, you know, there's, there's a kind of like online self-organization that is happening across racial and ethnic lines in terms of, you know, I never had access to, or my access to global indigenous communities before would have been limited to a conference circuit, um, an international art market. And that is sort of, you know, that's kind of, a, those are really privileged spaces to be in. But now I can access those communities right now online and sort of many other communities in which I feel aligned to. And so there's kind of the self-organizing that's happening, which means we're coming together in such an intense way in which I don't think we have before. And in the same respect, I think the book is kind of doing that a little bit in terms of we've had conversations about, well, maybe we have about race and ethnicity, but they've been more siloed. And so, you know, the conversations that I've been a part of have been in that specific silo. And so coming together in these new ways also forces conversations. It forces us to find new language because we also reach the limits of the language that we have currently. And, I, and, and so I think that's sort of one thing that's happening. The other thing is like, it's easy for me to kind of sit back and critique the way in which 
various racial terms are being used online as someone with time and access to the resources that I do have as you know someone who has a PhD and works in the academy and so it's sort of this like kind of tension where I feel like surely it's a good thing that these conversations are existing and are becoming quite quite mainstream and normalized even though they're so messy and frustrating and contradictory and you know I wish I could be like you should read this or you should come and talk to us and like you know people aren't interested in this stuff in the same way that we are and that's all good and so I think that there is kind of this weird it's this weird thing where it's sort of I don't know you're a voyeur in a way and you're a critic in a way but you do it because you want the conversation to be better for all of us and I don't know I can yeah I can talk myself in circles about these things but no, it's just, I really appreciate, um, like, Lana, you, your chapter taking social media really seriously, because that's not something that, I, like, I learn a lot from that, because, I mean, same as what Daniel was saying about pop culture, like, now you have kind of access or license to, like, do the guilty pleasure, but seriously, like, I, I really appreciate that, because I, like, and I know that cultural studies is kind of a field that exists in sociology, but I've not really had that much to do with it in the sense of looking at pop culture or looking at social media and taking it seriously as like, this is the collective unconscious speaking. Um, but it, yeah, it really helped me reframe that stuff as like serious of, like a serious source of academic inquiry. What do we say in the end? I think there's something for everyone. If you're interested in- We hope. <laughs> we hope, yeah. If you're interested in thinking about race, um, because there is, there's just a lot of different approaches, a lot of different angles, and, and they're not all necessarily on the same page, but that's the tension that we find um, productive in, in thinking and trying to understand. And again, it's something that's always shifting, right? You, it isn't definitive because it's it's alive, right? It's so It's social, and so it's- constantly moving shifting being reconstructed recreated but it does have these um, foundations right as these grammars that it's that it's premised on and, and in looking at those hopefully that'll help folks gain some better understanding and and, and perhaps more questions because this other thing is we we didn't really come out to um, provide any self-help or <laughs> answer any questions <laughs> make that clear <laughs> here at the end right is that uh, you, you may not come away with any answers, but hopefully with um, some tools to ask better questions, perhaps, or, or um, some better understandings and how to engage in. I guess from my perspective, I always think about my writing projects as a reader and my selfish wish is that people will just kind of pick up the conversations and challenge them and make them better so that we have more stuff to read in this area so that we can keep thinking with it it's I think there's there's always this weird thing where you sort of become the name on the cover but it's only just so that the conversation can get started and I hope that people see that and take up that challenge and challenge us because I would really welcome those kind of conversations you're, you're good, Lana. <laughs> oh, man. No, yeah, definitely. I, I, I agree. I think it's important to, to continue to have it expanding. I'm always just hoping people will read. Uh. <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's the first optimistic hope. But I think mine's like peak opti optimism. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Yeah, and I mean, we did make it. I mean, for me, it was, it, it was a, a welcome challenge to try to write in a shorter amount but yeah I was trying to write excessively and so this is one thing that I did want to to tease out just a little bit if you don't mind still is you know for me and, and the reason I do that is because I, I constantly 
remembering my own kind of journey and, and, and my various consciousness shifts or expansions, if you will. And so, you know, when I, when I think about accessibility, I'm always like, how do I write to my former self? How do I write to, you know, my future, you know, like my kids in the future or, or people who might be in similar positions who, who are hungry for stuff. But I also remember that I don't know if I could fully comprehend what I'm writing even uh, 10 or 15 years ago. So I'm not as accessible as I like to be. And part of that is just, I've changed so much that it's, uh, I'm in between too many things, but I do kind of try to do that um, because I, you know, I just, I, I guess I want to have it available. But on the other hand, you'd mentioned something, Anisha, right? Like of in defense of inaccessibility. And it made me kind of stop and pause and think further. And I'm like, yeah, I, I, I think for me, I, I have an element of that as well, where I want to be available, but it's also kind of a specific availability. When I'm thinking about my former self, people who are hungry for engaging in this and, and hopefully people who just see the importance of trying to think about stuff and to, even to challenge back. But then also not everything needs to be available all the time. And, and I think about mana and tapu in that regards, like something is tapu only in its tapu state in my mind. And, and, and that's for a reason because it's inaccessible uh, and it takes a certain level of mana to, to whakanoa, to neutralize that in order to access it. And I think in that sense, that was my immediate thoughts when you said it. And I was like, yeah, I mean, you got to put in work um, or else you're not even going to be able to meaningfully participate um, or, or it could be of danger, right? Again, thinking about tapu as danger, right? So anyways, I don't know if that's what you thought, but that was what I began thinking about. And I just wanted to throw that out real quick and just see what your thoughts were on kind of in defense of inaccessibility. I really, I always want to defend inaccessibility because I feel like, like I often get told that my work is inaccessible or that my writing is inaccessible. And I resent it for a lot of reasons but one of one of the reasons is that I feel like especially like working with editors and stuff I feel like often editors want to comb through the work and like they say they want to make it more accessible but that just becomes a chance to like take out the theory or to take out some like obscure or poetic formulations or references and for me that's really what I bring to what I write is like it's just kind of what it's what's happening in my inner world anyway and so when I put that on paper I want people to read it as it's happening in my head and I I don't really like I don't know how to frame it but I don't appreciate when the stuff that to me is a strength gets kind of taken out of the work as uh, like using the argument of it's it makes the work inaccessible because I for one would have loved to have read read that kind of thing being my former self like I would have I didn't really get to read any theory necessarily being younger and I never read, especially in the New Zealand context, like I never read um, people of color writing critical theory in mainstream spaces or writing um, theory heavy or like quite poetic and obscure things. But that's the kind of thing I love because that's the stuff that ends up staying with me the longest because it forces you to sit with it, to be patient and to decipher it and to do your own research. And like it really that's when a text becomes a companion is when it can kind of occupy you and force you to be present in that way. Whereas something that's pretty digestible or that's just like a, like an overview or a summary, or there are other ways of writing that are considered more accessible, but those aren't the things that ever have sat with me. And so I kind of wanted to, I kind of always want to defend my right to be inaccessible and write how I want because I am writing for my former self who would have appreciated that inaccessibility and it would have given me the chance to sit with text in that way. 
But also I kind of, the other reason that I want to defend accessibility is because of Edward Glissant's kind of work on the right to opacity. And he says that oppressed people have a right to um, be opaque, to not be like fully, um, I don't know what the word is, like decipherable or legible by the oppressor um, or like rendered transparent. And so I also like the idea of um, being inaccessible in the glissant sense of opacity because it kind of gives us a right to not be understood, but to still be respected on our own terms for our thought and for our politics without necessarily having to be understood. Like being transparent isn't a condition of possibility to um, be respected as an intellectual thinker or a political thinker. I think the had on Bloody Woman was that it was like dense and academic, which is really interesting to me because I don't think it is, but also because like what you said, Annie, the parts that like brought it alive to me, like discovering on Annie's recommendation, Sylvia Federici, which gave me like a whole theoretical underpinning to understand something that I've been like grappling with for years that's like the stuff that kind of to be a cliche felt like it changed my life like it gave me like whole new ways of saying um whole new sets of language and like I love that discovery and so like that stuff that I also just really want to hold on to and I think it's so important and I hate this kind of turn that we have here in New Zealand of the kind of like anti-intellectual tendency I don't know why we underestimate our ability and our desire to like want that theoretical um, discussion because actually I think people are so hungry for it and so I'm as someone who kind of like has always been told that my work is too academic which I think comes from the contemporary art background because we are very abstract which probably I'd say in part is because we can't write very well at the start um, and so it <laughs> sort of and we read a lot of philosophy um, so it kind of starts off dense and then going into journalism but having this like absolute love of theory and they're actually always being a question if I go to like a writer's festival which is like why do you like the academic stuff so much I'm like because it gives us these tools and it unlocks these worlds um, and the other thing too is like I don't think I can write without some of these concepts and without some of these, you know, particular words because that's exactly what I'm talking about. And so I sort of, I think what I love about the book is that there is something for everyone and that I think a lot of people are writing at different registers. But for me and myself, I sort of see that I'm writing for my peers and people who are like wanting to come with me on that conversation and engage in those ideas. And I also wish people had have been talking about Pacific life with more intense and more interesting theoretical concepts when I was younger because I think then it wouldn't have taken me so long to find the language that I have now so yeah I can't I, I mean I can't go back now you know like I don't want to go back like once you get into theory I'm like and and, and like you mentioned I, I I do think that there is a an underestimation of of, of people's capacity generally to engage with ideas, and you're right, I think people are absolutely hungry for ideas. Sometimes there might be issues of elitism with particular camps or disciplines or whatever, I, I can see that, but with what you're saying, no, absolutely, I think, you don't have, to, I mean, I think about even things in my youth, I mean, it was the philosophical ideas of Bob Marley or Tupac, for example, in my youth, it was the ideas that was intriguing to me, that grabbed, you know, that made me think, that challenged me or that pushed me, and it was, and then even I grew up in a religious context where it's so funny because it's these same people that will maybe critique, you know, accessibility as far as language. But I'm like, I was reading the freaking Bible as a child. I didn't understand any of that Elizabethan language. And I had to like, I was raised in that you have to study scriptural texts to even understand it. And I think that did give me a little bit of a background when I got to theory. I was like, whoa, these are some other ideas. And I like these ideas. But like I was ready to put in work for it. And so sometimes for me, I find it a contradiction when people don't want to put in that work when I'm like, man, I've met everyday folks who 
are engaging with some pretty heavy texts um and 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 at the same time if you think about like kids at high school reading shakespeare like that is like who can be inaccessible and who can't be inaccessible is so that is a double standard but at the same time you know like if you sit with shakespeare even though it's inaccessible because it's basically like a different language it's pretty profound and similarly and that's like you know considered high literature high art but at the same time if we write something inaccessible it's considered like not a, you know like it's not given the same that same standing not that i'm saying that we should be compared to shakespeare that <laughs> we're like geniuses but i just mean like in terms of accessibility there's such a double standard i was just going to say the example that came to my head when you were talking daniel is like the everyday use of CRT, like critical race theory, like try removing intersectionality from the urban vernacular now. And that came from somewhere that was at one time, I'm sure an inaccessible academic idea. And it may have taken a few decades, but it's like if people gravitate towards these concepts that they find things for them solved in them, then why are we trying to, you know, go back on that? And I think it's probably actually, you know, it's accessible to our own communities because they can see themselves in them in the way that we can. But if we have people in between that are stopping that sort of getting out into the world to the readers that are our communities, then that's probably mm. kind of the issue, right? Because it's inaccessible to who and by whose standards. Yeah. And that's when accessibility, like the demand for accessibility also turns into gatekeeping because the people who are telling you this is inaccessible are in a position of power often because they're the ones who decide whether or not your work is going to get published or it's going to make it into the public realm and they end up when they say that no this is too inaccessible they end up not letting you put you know like not letting you through in a way and that turns into gatekeeping i think about it like even you know we bring up all these examples and there's still a lot of poetry i don't understand um, but it's it's about what it makes me feel, you know, yeah. and, and that it, it makes me sit with ideas or feelings or thoughts. And, and the same with theory, like I said earlier, like I read Jody Bird the first time, I don't understand what it's writing about, but I liked it. I liked how it made me think. And then the second time I read it, reading it with other stuff, I was able to engage with it in a, in a different way. Um, but, it, but it took that time, you know, and processing it. And I'm like, just because I didn't get it the first time doesn't mean it wasn't beneficial to me. And even with Wilderson, I want to go back and read that again and see where I'll be at, you know, later, because, you know, having sat with it for a while and then coming back, you know, where, what are the insights am I going to gain from it? And, uh, yeah, theory is like poetry in, in that sense, right? It, it's those ideas that you got to sit with. And, and I don't know if I can ever really fully grasp it the way the writer meant it at the time, but maybe that's not the point either. And I like that openness of it, that, it does just keep unfolding and it just makes things mm. bigger. It's like a temporal thing so much. Like there's like, I feel like there's slow theory and that, you know, like it's a different temporal relationship to it because it does require you to be with the text and to think about it over time and sit with it. Or there's like the fast food of writing, which is just like, you're, you know, like you just kind of eat it and it's done. Like you don't need to, chew your food or you don't need to like yeah i don't know i call that my candy reading yeah candy reading yeah because it's easy and it is it's like candy it's sweet and i do enjoy it but it's like i don't remember it the same way because i didn't have to put in i didn't have to yeah i didn't have to engage with it in the same kind of way and sometimes when a text is quite demanding it's also like a two-way relationship you're sitting with the author rather than you're just like extracting yeah, I don't know. Um, and to folks looking out for the book, it'll be out in a few months, and then you can see what you think. And if you don't read our book, read something, because reading is good for you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks, y'all. Kia ora. Kia ora.